You're listening to Smith Talk with Keith Smith. That would be me, free-thinking American educator, bringing you conservative commentary and analysis on the news of the moment, along with life advice and random facts. Currently, I teach civics and economics to high school seniors. I am a U.S. military veteran, active duty Air Force, Army National Guard, and Air Force Reserve. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to this episode of Smith Talk. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. It's been a little while since I last posted an English language podcast, and there's a lot I'd like to get to in this episode. And we'll start out here with something that you may have noticed or may not, an interesting phenomenon. And here's the headline for you. Animal rebellion vegans pour out supermarket milk and plant-based future protest. And this is from Breitbart, dateline October 15th, but you can find this on other news sources as well. A group of vegan activist eco-warriors targeted supermarkets across Britain on Saturday, taking milk from the shelves and pouring it on the floors and other dairy products to advocate for a plant-based diet. Several upscale supermarket chains in Edinburgh, we'll go ahead and pronounce that like they do, across the pond, Edinburgh, London, Manchester, and Norwich. Not sure if I pronounced those correctly or not. But in all of these locations, members of a group called Animal Rebellion vandalized stores and destroyed property with activists dumping milk on the floor and other dairy products. In one case, they went to a meat counter and they opened cartons of milk and dumped it on to the meat counter and it looked like a supermarket, big supermarkets, kind of like what we would see here in the United States. And in one of the stores, they went after some very large and it looked like very probably expensive wheels of cheese. That right there is a cardinal sin for me. And perhaps many of you, cheese is its own food group. Love, love the cheese. And they went after the cheese and that wasn't cool. According to a press release from this group, they claim to have pulled the stunt in order to, quote, highlight the need to support farmers in transi transitioning to a sustainable plant-based food system. And if you look at this uh, set of videos here, the, the, the article in Breitbart, they have a few videos and it looks like somebody was in the store. They just pulled out their phone and they recorded it. You can't really hear everything they say. I'm going to roll here for you some audio from one of the groups. This is in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I'm going to play this one about 30 seconds of it because this is where you can you can hear best what these protesters are saying. And by the way, these are all very young, useful idiots, useful idiots, a term coined uh, by Vladimir Lenin for useful tools, people that can be used as tools, brainwashed, used to accomplish the end goal. And we'll get to what that is here in uh, in a little bit. We'll, we'll break this down, who this group is and who they are, but they're very young people. Look like they're in their late teens, look like 18, 19, or in their 20s for the most part. I'll go ahead and roll a video here, not a video, roll the audio from one of these record videos that somebody made with their phone. And in this one, just to paint the picture for you, this looks very much like a dairy section in a supermarket that you might see in the United States. Imagine coolers with 
gallons of milk. In this case, they look like they're two liter uh, plastic cartons. Of course, these liters over there, we use gallons or maybe one liter. And they're opening these cartons up and dumping, in the, dumping them on the floor. You have two young females standing in a puddle of milk with a dweeby, twerpy looking young guy standing off to the side, uh, not getting his feet wet in the milk, holding a sign that says plant-based future while the two young ladies, as they dump the milk out onto the floor and then drop the cartons, rant about what they're doing. Uh, much to the surprise and, and uh, shock, you could say, of the people in the store, the shoppers. And then in the video, you see some store employees approach these these people and ask them to please stop and they scream and shout in their face and anyway here we go I'll, let me roll it for you So in the audio there, you hear, I cut it off. You hear one of the two females. I didn't play all of the audio to where you hear the second uh, girl start to speak, but she says the oil-based diet. She talks about the oil-based diet, or I, I guess what she means is petroleum-based diet and dairy products being part of this petroleum-based diet that is killing planet earth, contaminating the earth, meat and dairy and so forth. Then she goes on to launches into a tirade on the evils of the industry and about how they take the poor baby cows away from their mothers and treat them so cruelly and all the while dumping the cartons of milk onto the floor. And, and then at the end, you hear one of this, you can't hear exactly what he says. We hear a male voice very faintly in the background. And that is one of the male store employees that walks up to this group of people and asks them to very politely asks them to please stop doing what they're doing and to leave the store and stop causing a disturbance. And of course, and then at that point, the, the other female becomes very in your face and starts dumping milk all over the spreading, making the puddle bigger and shouting and things like this. But I cut it off before we got to all of that. Anyway, so what is this all about? Like out of the blue, this is young, uh, useful idiots, these tools here. Well, we've got to go all the way back to this World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, where, of course, all of these people who, who think and act like they are much better than the rest of us unwashed masses got together and in a very hypocritical fashion, eating you know five-star meals, their filet mignon and what else they, whatever else they were having, rolling around in their SUVs and flying there in their large commercial private jet or not commercial but these private jets and so forth and they discussing the so-called climate crisis and in this meeting they it's it's like they go they go to each one of these things and let's see let's pick which industry we're going to pick on now which which is the industry okay pro, petroleum bad you know what let's expand you know what farms and farmers especially cattle ranchers and dairy farmers are part of the petroleum problem, according to these people. And they believe that non-animal protein is the way to go. 
because cow farts and the the nitrogen and ammonia released in the cattle raising industry animal husbandry you could say you get these large feed yards or these large dairies with piles of manure you have you have uh, nitrogen being released into the soil and you have ammonia from all of the urine that comes from the animals and then of course the cows fart and of course the methane from that it's just it's bad for the environment and one of the things that came out of this davos world economic forum was we need to reduce the world's animal herd cattle herd dairy and beef cattle things like this and where where i live here in southern california rural southern california the cattle industry is a big industry they have several very large feed yards here and a slaughterhouse locally it's it's a big industry they're attacking these industries and of course they're starting in western europe where the where the governments there already have uh, a tremendous amount of control over people's lives individual liberty has been eroded never never in europe have they ever had as much individual liberty and sovereignty as we have in the united states although we are going down that road and they are much more able to take measures in steps incrementally or dramatic however dramatically they want down whatever road they want to go and infringe upon people's individual rights their liberty their sovereignty their right to to have a business to own their business and and frankly to mind their own business and have the government stay out of it and so they've started down the, down this road in europe and they're promoting non-animal protein that is bugs they want us to all eat bugs and from what i understand i don't i'm not a superhero person don't like the superhero movies but for example in the avengers uh a new marvel movie end game part two or whatever it is uh you have iron man out there played by robert downey jr jr where he's eating canisters of bugs but they're promoting this in in europe the european union has declared mealworms for example safe to eat so they want to replace your steak with a plateful of mealworms or insect protein and what they have not mentioned is that it has been found that somewhere around 30 percent of the mealworms or whatever carry parasites that are potentially harmful or transmissible to humans and harmful to humans you don't want to go out and eat just anything you don't want to go shoot a rabbit and eat it without looking at it making sure it doesn't have worms and cooking it really well same with meat and the and the same thing with with animals here they are they're carriers carriers of uh, parasites and uh, insects according to the nih are an uh, underestimated reservoir of human and animal parasites We'll see where this ends, but I can guarantee you this, the people that are making these rules and pushing for these things are not the ones who are going to eat worms. They're not the ones who are going to eat the tofu steak or the plant burger. You are, and they will continue to fly around in their private jets and they will continue to roll around in their heavy SUVs and, uh, or their limousines and eat the filet mignon while while the rest of us unwashed masses that don't know really know what's good for us and need to listen to them because they're more wise and enlightened 
than we are, we will eat the bugs and we will be the ones uh, stuck with the short end of the stick here. But this movement, this so-called animal rebellion movement in Britain, which I'm going to predict right now, if it's not here already in North America, it's going to get here. You're going to see soon somewhere in North America, somebody do a similar protest. They're going to go and and this, I, I believe this is the same group that went and threw canned soup on a very famous painting in a museum. Anyhow, you're going to see this kind of thing happening here. Um, but in Europe, we see this already. We see this push and this animal rebellion movement is part of it. And it's starting in the Netherlands with the Dutch. They're going to, their farmers, their dairy and cattle farmers are going to have to reduce by at least uh, 30% their livestock herds. And this is going to put farms out of business, farmers out of business. In fact, there is a Dutch city, and this is a headline from just last month, September 9th, Dutch city to become the first in the world to ban meat advertisements over climate change. And reading from the article here, which is uh, from The Blaze, a Dutch city will become the first in the world to ban most, if not all, meat advertisements from public spaces in an attempt to affect climate change. Harlem, which is a city about 20 miles west of the capital city of Amsterdam, will outlaw meat ads starting in 2024. The law would prohibit advertisements for meat in public places in the city of 160,000 people. It's all part of this movement here. It's absolutely nuts. These people are useful idiots. And I so I went and I looked up who are these animal rebellion folks who are they what is this what is this all about went to their website which is a plantbasedfuture.animalrebellion.org if you're interested and i clicked on uh, one of the links there to where they're explaining why they're doing what they're doing and it says here's the here's the title of this uh, on the at the top of this page animal says animal rebellion and it's got a picture of a cow with a like a silhouette of a cow with a chicken on its back and a little piggy uh, a pig next to it why we're disrupting the supply of dairy, the climate crisis changes everything. And basically they make a call here to people. They're targeting young, impressionable people who are, who've already been frightened into thinking that the world is going to end because of cow farts and global climate change and these types of things. Young people who just, you know, a year and a half ago or two ago were probably rioting in the streets uh, participating in the in the BLM riots and stuff like this these types they're, they're looking for a cause looking for it's a it's largely a godless group and this becomes like their religion it's very dogmatic uh, so reading here it says this summer it goes it talks about Europe experiencing drought and uh, Pakistan monsoon rains and th all things that have happened before oh a biggest drought in 500 years well, yeah, these things happen. They it's cycles. This is why when the rivers go low, in for example, in Europe, and you see the starvation stone, you see these stones that people carved on, saying if you see this, if you if you can read this, weep, and it was carved in the stone, you know, five hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, somebody carved a message in a stone when the river was low, saying things got really bad, and well, these things cycle. We had the the mini ice age. We had the medieval, medieval uh, warming period, all of these things. But they put out a call to action here that they want to 
basically change the entire rework, revamp the entire food chain system and farming and so forth. And they want to completely eliminate protein, like animal-based protein from people's diets. They want to force this on people. And they also want to get petrol. These are, you know, this is the same group that wants to pull petroleum out of farming altogether. The war on oil, the war on uh, petroleum, these types of things. So I have a question for these people. I grew up in a farming area here. In fact, before I went into the service, I worked as a field agronomist going out, pulling soil and plant samples and things like this and taking it to a lab where they would test it. And then they would tell the farmer how much nitrogen they needed to put on the field or potassium or whatever to, to, for the crop to, to grow the way that it needed to grow and have a good production. Most of our fertilizers are produced using fossil fuels. And the only way to get around that, the only way around fossil fuels, and like if you want to go organic, which is kind of nasty if you know what they what they put on organic, you have to have nitrogen. It's science. You you have to like to talk about science, you have to have nitrogen and potassium, but especially nitrogen and, and other micronutrients to grow a crop. Talk to any agronomist, uh, any soil scientist, and they will they can they will explain this to you. The only other way to get nitrogen in large enough quantities onto a field, and like I said, this is what they do for organic, is to use animal guano or manure. They use a lot of, at least they used to, use a lot of bat guano, uh, organic. They would put it in these big tanks and digest, like mix it with water and it would liquefy it, kind of digest it, ferment it, and then they would take that and they could inject it into a, into a bed or a row where they're growing, you know, say organic lettuce or carrots or whatever, and, and put the nitrogen in the ground. Or as in the case right next to us, where we live here in the rural Southern California, we've got 150 acre field irrigation behind us and flood irrigation. And they just spread several, probably dozens of tons of manure on this field from the local feed. So the local cattle industry here will take manure produced by the cattle in the feed yards, which are going to go become hamburgers, hot dogs, and steak. And they take the manure and you spread it on the field and that gets nitrogen. So if you get rid of all of the cattle herds and you get rid of petroleum, pray tell, how are we going to produce enough food for everybody in the world to eat? Let me pull another clever insult from my old football coach, mental midgets. These people are intellectually deficient, at least the useful tools falling, falling for all of this. And the ones designing this stuff, it, it, it looks like it's a calculated push towards socialism, some sort of a government control or, or system where we are just a cog, like think like 1984, two plus two is five. That's where they're coming from. And it's, if you go on their website and look at it, it's, these people are absolute lunatics. They're way out of the mainstream. And this has become very much like a religion to them. It's dogmatic. There are a lot of religions that have dietary guidelines. For example, kosher or halal for um, practitioners of uh, Judaism or Islam. They have dietary guidelines and, and believers. 
practitioners of that faith will follow the dietary guidelines. And in, in all religions, there are sacraments or uh, traditions, ordinances, you could say, or things that people do uh, in, in forms of worship and stuff like this. And you see this in this movement. These are, these are godless young people who have been brainwashed by the education system. They have replaced a traditional belief in a higher power with, in this case, membership in, instead of, let's say, their, their membership in uh, the Roman Catholic Church, they are members of the Animal Rebellion Church. And their, their dietary guidelines for a practitioner of this religion is you go vegan. Now, all religions, well, not all, but many religions proselytize or evangelize. Most religions, especially Christian religions, don't, don't go out and try to force people through pressure, through threat or fear of punishment into the religion. Now, an exception to this would be, of course, we know that there are radicals in any sect, especially we see in the Middle East, radical Islamic jihad, where at the point of a sword, you're going to convert or you're going to die. And if you break the rules, if you live in the theocratic state, you break the rules, then you are severely punished. This religion, this cult, you could call it, is attempting to wage jihad on the rest of the world. They're, they are not content to sit by or to try to convince people. Yes, they're out there evangelizing, you could say, through things like this, this website. And so you, you, this is just their website, but um, they have a social media presence, all of these things. How do you think these young people walked into that store? Of course, they were, you could say they were proselytized to or evangelized by this organization and converted and became practitioners of this faith. Um, but instead of going out and trying to convert others, which I'm sure they're trying to do, they are also practicing jihad. This is a holy war. This is a calculated holy war against the rest of the world. Anybody who, who is not going to go along with it. And they're going to attempt to force people and coerce people. And that's what you see happening in Western Europe. And I have news for you. It is coming to us in North America. We're just in the beginning. Right now, the war is on petroleum and natural uh, uh, fossil fuels, natural gas, things like this. They're coming next will be things like this. This is a step that is coming soon in the United States of America and in Canada. We're looking at North America. And meanwhile, according to the United Nations, this year, uh, one million people are going to starve to death. You go to the UN, Reuters uh, news uh, was a headline, one million people are in danger of starving to death this year in Africa, in the Middle East, mainly South Asia. And these people would, would rather destroy the world's ability, these, the bread baskets of the world by depriving them of any form of nitrogen that could be used to produce a crop to feed the world. By the time they're done, we will be living in mud huts and of course, eating bugs, if there are any bugs to eat. Moving on to other perhaps more entertaining current events, pillar of intellect, our vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris has 
well, since the last episode, she's had several Kamala moments, but we've got a deep thought here from the vice president. Enjoy, and then we'll talk about it. And now, Deep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. I have a particular fondness, I must tell you, for electric school buses. I love electric school buses. <laughs> I really do. And we're manufacturing them in our country. I've been to the manufacturing plants. I've, I've been on these electric school buses. And think about it. Aside from the pandemic, on a daily basis, 25 million children in our country every day go to school. On the bus, go round and round, all through the town. And there you go. What you heard there was the vice president in an appearance this last week on a podcast in San Francisco titled A Matter of Degrees. And this is a podcast hosted by two climate lunatics. Dr. Leah Stokes and Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, the little alphabet soup there at the beginning of the name, the doctor there, I assume means that they have a piece of paper that says that they are intelligent human beings and experts on, in this case, climate, I, I can assume. They, that's their topic of discussion. And I looked at their podcast and a number of, of different podcasts that they have on there and the titles on them, they're just absolutely crazy. Climate nuts. Uh, my guess is that, that soon enough they'll have a podcast on why we all need to eat bugs and how that's a great idea and why we need to declare war on, if they haven't done it already, I didn't see it in the top 10, but, and why we need to declare war on meat and cattle farmers. But they had the vice president on and her, it sounds like her new buzzword is school bus. That's the word of the week. That's the special word of the week for Kamala. I'll give you, I, I couldn't help throwing in the Wheels on the bus go round and round there in the background. But let me give you a little bit of context here. She's sitting on a stage with these uh, two women who are interviewing her. Absolute softballs. They're just gushing over her and just toss, lobbing her softballs. And she walks into this thing with a sheaf of papers with, I can assume, answers to questions that they're going to ask her or might ask her. Maybe they gave her some questions ahead of time. So they ask her, what are some parts of the Inflation Reduction Act that you most like? Let me play you her full response. Actually, the question was, what are some parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, Act this amazing new law that you're most excited about? And I'll play her full response here, and then we'll break it down. What are some parts of the Inflation Reduction Act, this, this amazing new law that you are most excited about? So, I mean, so much. So I'm, I'm, one of the things that I'm very excited about is what we have been doing in terms of electric vehicles. Um, and I, I have a particular fondness, I must tell you, for electric school buses. I love electric school buses. <laughs> I really do. And we're manufacturing them in our country. I've been to the manufacturing plants. I've, I've been on these electric school buses. And think about it. Aside from the pandemic, on a daily basis, 25 million children in our country every day go to school on those diesel-fueled school buses. And hundreds, thousands of school bus drivers are driving those buses which are then these people, these children, these adults, are inhaling what is toxic air. 
you can see the gears just slowly grinding in her head and it's almost like a moment of panic when they ask her this question and she kind of rambles like stumbles along there a little bit about electric cars the question is about the inflation reduction act inflation reduction act which we all know of course is not going to reduce inflation in fact all kinds of news out there from nonpartisan sources like the congressional budget office that have said this is not going to reduce inflation in fact it's probably adding to inflation she stumbles along here and she she looks down at her sheaf of papers and kind of looks to the side as she's rambling on and then decides to go with school buses that she this this fake excitement about school buses it's you know i can't help but wonder if the experience going and getting on these electric school buses and riding around wherever the heck that was that factory was where she went and toured it just a couple of weeks ago i think it was in virginia the electric school bus uh, plant if it didn't bring back memories of riding a riding the short bus to school certainly not the sharpest tool in the shed and you watch kamala harris in these moments and you can't help but wonder well maybe this is the reason why the democrat handlers of joe biden the senile old man that can't remember where he's at half the time and says horribly racist things and sniffs little girl's hair and makes inappropriate comments to young girls why they haven't exercised the 25th amendment on that old dotard and removed him from office well this is what you're stuck with not the sharpest tool in the shed but she goes on and she she rambles on about this electric school buses and how great they are and how children are riding school buses powered by diesel and how that's a terrible thing that they're inhaling fumes last time i checked I, i'm a school teacher coached for a long time rode school buses to games and my kids get on a school bus every day and ride to school and it's powered by diesel last i checked my children are not inhaling and the last time i got on a school bus i did not inhale diesel fumes as i rolled down the road unless there's something wrong with the exhaust system on that vehicle we have in the school district where i worked they got a couple of I think, two or three new it's a very small school district new electric school buses not the most favorite things not the most reliable they can use them for short one charge is like enough to do basically one route and then they got to take it back and charge it in a rural route going out in the country around and around and i notice the buses that are rolling doing the the out of town rural routes it is a rural area rural school district are the older diesel powered buses usually but not always and we're well on a bus 55 stay alive school bus probably about three hours away from the nearest large city on the coast and they cannot take these buses that far in fact they can't take these buses to field trips anywhere more than a half an hour you know 45 minutes away from the school or they can't like maybe the football team needs to get on a bus and go to a game that's two hours away they can't do it with these electric buses and they're they're overpriced uh junk and the batteries you know the battery dies what happens or what happens if there's a traffic accident are they going to catch on fire and what's going to happen i mean it, it's very hot here and places where it's frigid in the in the winter how are these buses going to function 
we've spent billions of dollars on this. My guess is there's some sort of payoff here. You look at who is who is benefiting from these billions of dollars flowing into these industries and look at who they're who they're donating to as far as campaigns go and stuff like this and it's a political payoff and uh, anyway there's your there's your Kamala Harris moment for the week and a pretty good example why we're we're not going to pull the trigger on the 25th amendment and get Biden out of office because we're stuck with this halfwit moving on to other headlines here Boston this is from October 17th Boston University researchers claim to have developed a new, more lethal COVID strain in a lab. This is from Fox News. Researchers at Boston University added a spike protein from the Omicron COVID variant with the original Wuhan strain, which has an 80% kill rate. So let me read on here. Researchers at Boston University say they have developed a new COVID strain that has an 80% kill rate following a series of similar experiments first thought to have started the global pandemic that began in China. The variant, a combination of Omicron and the original virus from Wuhan, killed 80% of the mice infected with it, the university said. When the mice were only exposed to Omicron, they experienced mild symptoms. The research was conducted by a team of scientists from Florida and Boston at the school's National Emerging Infectious Diseases Laboratories. They extracted the spike protein from Omicron and attached it with the first strain or with the strain first detected at the onset of the pandemic that began in Wuhan. The new strain has five times more infectious particles than the Omicron variant and led to a mortality rate of 80% in the mice that were tested. Did we not learn the lesson? the gain of function lesson. We know that in Wuhan, the United States government, Dr. Fauci, funneled money through a third party organization to fund researching gain of function. And gain of function, function researching is biological warfare research, creating biological warfare agents. That's what was happening in Wuhan. Ostensibly under the, the guise of we're going to try to figure out you know, we're going to see what these diseases, you know, we can create them and these diseases that might emerge and see if we can figure out a way to treat them and stuff like that. Um, let me add in allegedly, as far as the U.S. government indirectly funding the research at Wuhan or helping to fund that laboratory run by the Chinese Communist Party that infected the world with a biological warfare agent, as far as I'm concerned. Did we not learn our lesson? Apparently not. How in the world... In the United States of America, do we have in a public university gain of function research going on without any oversight from the Department of Defense or the Centers for Disease Control or anybody? It seems like if of all the things, you know, I'm, I'm not a big uh, supporter of government regulation. In fact, I want the least amount of government regulation possible. All about individual liberty. But it seems like this would be an area, this would be something that we would you know, maybe be interested in, you know, monitoring. Meanwhile, in other news, uh, while we have the government apparently turning a blind eye to gain-of-function research and the creation of a disease that could kill 80% of us, according to this report, the FBI arrests an 87-year-old pro-life concentration camp survivor for peacefully protesting abortion. If you've been following it, the Department of Justice is on a headhunt right now 
looking for people who violated the allegedly Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act for blocking the entrance of an abortion clinic. And they've gone out and we've seen the news where they've gone in FBI agents with guns drawn, heavily armed, as though they were going after somebody who was involved in dangerous criminal activity and arresting people who basically stood in front of the door of an abortion clinic or sat on the ground in a sit-in in a, in a peaceful protest. Maybe they were trespassing, maybe not, praying and things like this. And one of the ladies that they arrested is an 87-year-old woman who survived a Nazi concentration camp. And this lady's name is Ava Adel. And I read here from this article that is from lifenews.com. Ava Adel is a German survivor of a communist prisoner of war camp during World War II. I correct myself, this is communist prisoner of war concentration camp during World War II. After she escaped that horror, Adel dedicated her life to fighting for human rights for everyone, including before birth. Now, I'm wondering if this is correct. Communist prisoner of war concentration camp. I'm wondering what this is. But anyway, the historian in me is like, eh, I want to know what this is. But I read on. Quote, the first time I realized there were abortion clinics in our country was in 1988, she said, according to a previous live action news report. I said to my husband, these are the death camps of America. I saw people sitting in front of abortion clinics in Atlanta, and I've been involved ever since. If you were in a death camp like I was as a girl, would you want those who were obligated to love you to lobby for cleaner death camps? Less bugs in our starvation diet? Please, it disgusts the Lord that we waste so much time and money that will not protect one single child, even if the legislation is upheld by the court. If we have to defy the judiciary for even the most toothless attempts to regulate abortion, mandating sanitary killing centers, for example, why not defy the judiciary to protect every child as our leaders took an oath to do? Why settle for less than the very minimum that God settles for? According to the Bible, Numbers 35 and Genesis 9, only justice abates the wrath of God for the shedding of innocent blood. I believe every jurisdiction, city, county, state, federal, international should immediately criminalize every abortion and protect every baby. And woe unto us if we don't. The wrath of God is against us and time is short to waste effort trying to regulate the child killing. We wind up on the wrong side of the line. God's drawn so clearly. And so she's one of over a dozen people across the country in that end quote there, over a dozen people who have been arrested for peacefully protesting her crime. She sat down in front of the door of an abortion clinic and prayed. That was her crime. So we got gain of function research going on in Boston. Now, nobody in the federal government seems to care about that, but we're spending time and effort hunting down people who peacefully protested. And if anything, maybe they trespassed and that is a local, a, a local ordinance or a state ordinance, the state or local prosecution that would happen normally, a warning and a fine after the warning if you continue to violate. Nobody arrested. None of these people that the FBI is after were arrested. None of them. It was all handled locally. Either they paid fines or they were warned or the case was dropped or dismissed. And they have not been a problem. It's, it's absolutely nuts what is going on in our country with these situations.
Check out Year of the Rooster, first 72 hours on Amazon.com. It's available in Kindle format for $2.99 or for free if you have Kindle Unlimited $7.99 paperback version. Year of the Rooster is a novel of historical fiction about war between the United States and China. Far-fetched? Could China pursue global dominance via conflict? If one looks to human history for an answer to this question, the answer is yes. So far, all great empires were born of conflict. All great empires and nations have historically had to fight to maintain their place of dominance. What then would a conflict of this sort look like? How would it begin? The historical record is rife with instances of surprise attack. If you want to be scared out of your mind, take a look at Year of the Rooster, first 72 hours on Amazon.com. And moving on to other topics, if you were not aware, we just wrapped up Hispanic Heritage Month in the United States, which ran from September 15th to October 15th, overlapping a couple of weeks in each month there. And I always thought it was because of the Columbus Day celebration in October, the which was always a, a great uh, celebration for Italian Americans, as, as you know, or should know if you paid attention and you had a teacher that taught you. U.S. history and world history properly that the explorer who ex flew under explored under the flag of Spain, Christopher Columbus or Cristóbal Colón as he's known in Spanish, was actually Italian. But uh, he did sail under the Spanish flag and kick off the Spanish Empire's conquest of America. And the much vilified uh, uh, Christopher Columbus, uh, of course, tearing down his statues, covering them up, and things like this. He's been canceled. And uh, that's a topic we may get into at another time and another day. But Hispanic Heritage Month, I, you know, my children are Hispanic. I have native Spanish-speaking ability. I grew up right down here on the border in Southern California, majority Hispanic. Uh, love Spanish-American, Mexican-American culture. My wife uh, is from Central America, and I've lived and traveled down there and everything. Even so, even that said, I don't like the idea of this dividing us into groups and saying we're going to focus on what makes us different we should be and we always have been in this country a melting pot of cultures and races and ethnicities and what matters is of course content of character so this i get the you know let's celebrate our heritage and be proud of it and these types of things of course uh, those on the left are very much all about celebrating our differences as opposed to celebrating commonality what we have in common as human beings and aspects of character and what makes a person a good person and what makes somebody american is is not race or ethnicity but it's our common belief at least what it used to be and should be our common belief in those ideals that are the united states the foundational principles of the united states of america this last month was Hispanic Heritage Month, and of course, near and dear to the Democrats' heart. And here's the headline for you. Democrats close out a disastrous Hispanic Heritage Month. And it was kind of interesting. I, I saw, you know, marked, you know, in school, being a public school teacher, you know, they mark the beginning of these, and you always get the emails or whatever. And then as this last few weeks has progressed, it was just like one thing after another. I'm thinking, holy cow, well, the Democrats are really kind of pooping in the swimming pool on this one. And lo and behold, uh, there's this article out from Breitbart that summed it up pretty well. So I'm going to go with this here. October 15th marks the last day of this year's Hispanic Heritage Month. One, the administration of leftist President Joe Biden and fellow Democrats marked with a string of embarrassing gaffes 
and episodes of discrimination that will likely do little to improve the party's poor prospects with Hispanic Americans. So according to this article, it's centered around the October 12th, Christopher Columbus, uh, Columbus uh, Day, uh, 12th being the date of the anniversary that Columbus cited land for the first time. This is the, of course, this is the breakfast taco presidency. You remember the first lady went and compared Hispanic voters to breakfast tacos earlier this year. According to this article, the Democrats outdid themselves this year in style and substance. Uh, starting out with Biden's bizarre claim of being Puerto Rican and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi complaining that America needs more Hispanics, quote, to pick the crops. And in foreign policy, our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, spent a lot of the last four weeks in Latin America promoting, quote, dialogue between the oppressive totalitarian socialist dictatorship of Nicolas Maduro and Venezuela and the opposition, um, all while reports surfaced, I'm reading on here, that the Biden administration was gearing up to lift sanctions on the Maduro regime that would produce windfall oil profits. He's desperate for oil right now since he's shut down oil production in the United States or made it very difficult. We're out there begging the Saudis and begging the, you know, these radical communists. That, I don't know if they can even pump enough oil out of Venezuela to satisfy what we need. They they canned everybody. They nationalized the oil-producing industry in Venezuela. The infrastructure down there is crumbling. It's falling apart. It hasn't been maintained. The petroleum engineers who worked for Exxon Mobil or Shell or companies like this that were whoever it was was doing business down there, they got a dodge. They went somewhere where they could make money. They're left with a bunch of largely incompetent government managers that have no clue about how to run an oil field and the infrastructure is falling apart. Production is down and things like this. And news out of California here, Hispanics on the left also took some heat when Los Angeles leftist Los Angeles City Council members, these people, I'm talking about leftists, these people are just out there nuts, crazy people. They engaged in some, some very racist conversations. And I remember seeing the headline and listening to this stuff. And they called, and in this, it was in Spanish that they were talking, but they referred to a, a black child or African-American child as a, quote, little monkey. It's a changuito, a little monkey. Imagine if a Republican or conservative of any race or, you know, imagine, you know, Hispanic or, or African-American or take your pick, referred to a black child as, quote, a little monkey, which is a terrible, disgusting thing to say about a child. And uh, we can pile it up here. Then we've got what went on in Martha's Vineyard, this elite island Island of elitists where Barack Obama has his multi-million dollar mansion, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. And they had 48 mostly Venezuelans migrants show up, sent their way from a governor DeSantis in Florida. This is one of the most expensive places to go in the United States. And there are a lot of very wealthy leftists and leftist Democrat donors that um, like Obama during, I remember during the COVID shutdown, everything is shut down and nobody can go anywhere and nobody can do anything. But for Obama's birthday, they threw this huge party at his house uh, on mansion on Martha's Vineyard. And they had this big party and it, and it leaked out. You had all these hypocrite leftist Democrats there, no masks on partying together in his backyard while they're constituents were locked down and their kids out of school and and things like this but that's martha's vineyard 
And these people are hypocrites. They talk this big talk about, oh, we need to be opening and welcoming. They they were there less than two days. And you had the governor of Massachusetts that called up the National Guard and pretty much deported them to a military base. And in fact, some of those people did wind up getting deported later on, I think. Just absolute hypocrisy. Nancy Pelosi wraps it up on a trip down to Florida where she said, quote, we have a shortage of workers in our country. And you see even in Florida, some of the farmers and growers saying, why are you shipping these migrants up north? We need them to pick the crops down here, Pelosi says. And uh, of course, this prompted uh, a wave of indignation from many Hispanic Americans. And this is how a lot of the establishment Republicans in favor of open borders and things like this and the Democrats, this is how they see this mass migration from mainly Central Mexico, Central, South America, and the Caribbean, and of course, everywhere else in the world. But most of the people, that's where they're coming from, largely Latino. They see them as a new voter bloc. The Democrats have pretty much destroyed their longtime, very dependable voter blocs, the African-American community community in, in many large cities. And you see of course, with the, the Blexit movement, things like this, trending away from that. But for example, in New York, in the state of New York, or is it New York City, an African-American pregnancy, a black baby, is three times more likely to be aborted than to be born. And in fact, across the board in the United States, as a minority group, African-Americans are at below replacement fertility rate. Statistically, according to demographers, you need an average of 2.1 births per female in a population just to maintain the the level the, the population level and the african american community is at like 1.7 or 1.8 and a lot of that is because of abortion you look at large cities and abortion clinics and planned parenthood they target minority neighborhoods they target them so the democrats have destroyed the african american community with their policies and they are in need at this time of a new marginalized minority group and they they have no intention of really helping them they don't they they want hispanics they want to expand this group of his, hispanic or latino voters in the united states then they think that they're going to vote for them perpetually and basically it's we're going to show up every three every two or every four years and promise to take care of you and promise you this that or the other thing and then we're going to turn around and ignore you and promote policies that actually rip your communities apart and destroy them and destroy your families i've got news for those on the left. Here's a couple of headlines. And this one, Dateline, October 14th of this year, 2022. And this is from Newsmax. New poll shows Dems losing Hispanic support since 2018. A new poll out shows Democrats losing support among Hispanics compared to the 2018 midterm races. Friday's Washington Post-Ipsos poll shows Democrats with a net of 63% support among Hispanic voters. I question that. I teach, I'm going to pause here for a moment and interject a random thought. I teach at, uh, in a public school, high school, all high school seniors in an area that is over 80% Hispanic, as far as demographics go. My wife is Hispanic. My children are Hispanic. As I said, never in my life, never in my career teaching civics have I had as many students as I've had this year who are Hispanic students outright disparage and speak ill of a sitting Democrat president. 
And we, of course, in the civics, in, in my class, we talk about these things and I'm in class, I'm apolitical. I don't take sides and I listen and, and kids say things and you know what the kids are talking about at home. And these, I, I don't know if I completely believe this could be, could be more, but it's a 63% support for Democrats with 36% for Republicans. That's a decline for Democrats. Uh, since the last midterm elections, the exit polls conducted by Pew Research in 2018 saw 72% of Hispanic voters supported Democrat candidates, while 25% supported Republicans. And the shrinking advantage for Democrats appears, as I read here, it says, to have its roots in the economy and a tepid approval of Joe Biden's job performance during the past two years. You think? I listened to these high school kids talk. You know what they're talking about at home as they're sitting in front of the TV around the dinner table or listening to their parents talk. Very A lot of very traditional homes or traditional families, and they hear their parents talk. And people are hurting. People are suffering. They're struggling. They're trying to decide between, do I buy groceries or do I put gas in the car? Do I take my kid to the doctor or do I buy the cheapest over-the-counter medication I can and give it to them? That's the kind of things people are trying to decide. I think it's going to be even more pronounced. Here's a headline for you from CNN, the communist news network, formerly known as the Clinton News Network, dateline October 15th. The Latino voter shift comes into focus in South Texas. I read here, what first appeared as statistical noise is now becoming clearer. Historically, left-leaning Latino voters are shifting toward the GOP with the potential to swing major races come November's midterm elections. And with razor-thin margins determining control of Congress, Hispanic communities where Donald Trump unexpectedly made gains in 2020 are coming into sharp focus, especially the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas. Here, the battle for Texas's 15th congressional district between Republican Monica de la Cruz and Democrat Michelle Vallejo is arguably the state's most competitive house race and may be a test for Republicans' appeal among Hispanic voters. Hispanic Americans make up one-fifth of registered voters in more than a dozen hotly contested House and Senate races in Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Nevada, and Texas. While Democrats are still expected to win a majority of Latino voters, their margins appear to be shrinking dramatically in some cases. What we're seeing now is that the GOP has stepped in and helped us to get our messaging out to show Latinos their values of faith, family, and freedom really align with the Republican Party, De La Cruz said. They, if you read on in this article, they go on to say, basically CNN's uh, reasoning here is, oh, they're spending a bunch of money. There's the, the Republicans are spending a bunch of money. Oh, those tricky Republicans. Oh, the Latino voters, they don't really know what they want. Just the Republicans are spending a lot of money down there. I'm going to predict right now that you're going to see some congressional districts in these places flip red and go Republican. Hispanic voters, Hispanic families are traditional. They are they are socially conservative. And for years, they have voted Democrat because that's just what you did if you were an immigrant. That's what you did if you were blue collar. And that trend is changing. We see, uh, for example, union workers, blue collar union workers turning on the Democrat party. You know, it used to be a very consistent voter base, but they're looking at, it's the economy, stupid, among other things. They're looking at this radical hard left turn, the priorities of the Democrat party. What do they, all they have right now is abortion, abortion, abortion. We need to, we need to make it so somebody can kill their child right before it's born is what they're saying. Proposition one in California is 
case in point there, legalize infanticide is what it's going to do. And they see this and Hispanic voters, by and large, Roman Catholic, a lot of evangelical Christians and other uh, people of other denominations, people of faith, they're Christians. By and large, they do not support abortion. They don't. The ones you see supporting abortion and these types of things are the ones who've gone off to school and been brainwashed. Hispanic voters and Hispanics are, Latino voters in this country are conservative. You look at the people that I know personally, some of whom are Democrats, been voting Democrat for a long time, now talking a different story and reconsidering that decision. We'll see how it turns out, but I'm going to I'm going to go on record right now and predict that you're going to see some upsets. We saw it already in South Texas uh, with that special election, and we're going to see it again. serious. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of them defining the terms, defining the narrative. They're fleecing you. They're taking advantage of you. We've been too timid. They can get away with it. They're fleecing you. They're taking advantage of you. Every single one of you. Every single day. Hundreds of millions of dollars a week they're putting in their pockets, lining their pockets at your expense, and then polluting this planet and leaving us all the external reality and costs associated with that. I think as a taxpayer, every single one of us would be outraged and disgusted by it. It's never been done at the state level, so this is a novel strategy and approach. We mean business. This will give us the time to do it um, and organize it in an effective and a very thoughtful way. They don't know what the hell they're talking about if that's their assessment. I mean, you can add up all the environmental-related costs. In California, it doesn't equate to the 250 that they're gouging us on. I just had to say something in Russian. I come to you, comrades, from the People's Republic of California behind the Iron Curtain, as it were, in this single-party state. For the first time in California history, there will be no uh, debates for statewide office elections. Yes, that's right. The Democrats this year, for the first time in California history, just flat out refused. Said, why waste our time doing this? We know we're going to get 60, 65% of the vote. We're not debating. Well, hopefully the pendulum swings the other way sometime and sometime soon. Well, that was Gavin Newsom there, dear leader Newsom, and altogether fitting the Soviet anthem. The governor in his infinite stupidity, has called for a special legislative session in California over gas prices. Now, just so you know, most states have it set up like this, and it's also set up like this in the federal government. The president of the United States can call a special session of Congress. The governor of a state, usually, in this case, California, and dear leader Newsom, can call a special session of the state legislature. And usually when this is done, it is for a very serious reason. For example, if the president wishes to address Congress after some sort of terrible emergency, for example, 
the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks, they can call for a special session and address Congress or ask Congress to deal with something. And so the governors will do the same thing. And Newsom uh, said this last week that he's calling a special session. And there were some excerpts of the speech there, uh, quote, what he called rank price gouging by oil companies, just making too much money. The price average in California just last week hit $6.39 a gallon statewide. On the coast, it's it can be even worse than that. Out here in rural California, away from the coast, we're still pretty high. Last time I filled up, it was cheapest I could find was $5.79 a gallon. And according to the news articles at the time that this, uh, just a couple of days ago, time that this uh, was printed, the difference was $2.58 between the California average and the national average, according to AAA. According to Newsom, there is nothing to justify this price difference of more than $2.50 a gallon between California's gas prices and prices in other states. And quote said Newsom, it's time to get serious. I'm sick of this. We've been too timid. And he just ripped into them. Into, into the oil companies. And the oil companies were quick to respond. Probably uh, many of you have followed the news on this. Five executives from various oil and gas companies in California, these firms that would normally be competitors with each other, released a uh, letter, public letter to the state of California and to the governor who demanded said, quote, the oil industry owes Californians answers for not having provided an adequate and transparent explanation of this price spike. So this is what they said. California is the most expensive operating environment in the country and a very hostile regulatory environment for refining. California policymakers have knowingly adopted policies with the express intent or the expressed intent of eliminating the refinery sector. That's absolutely true. They have stated it. The governor himself has stated it. We are ending fossil fuel dependence in California, and they are in the process of phasing out an entire industry. California requires refiners to pay very high carbon cap and trade fees and burdened gasoline with the cost of low carbon fuel standards. With the backdrop of these policies, not surprisingly, California has seen refineries completely close or shut down major units. When you shut down refinery operations, you limit the resilience of the supply chain. Yes, and, and here we have the oil and gas executives trying to school Gavin Newsom on basic economics, but I don't think he's going to get it. Every year, you know, even the LA Times, I'll come back to that thought in a moment. Even the LA Times, headline from the LA Times, California policymakers have failed for decades on gas prices. And this is a reliably ultra-left, liberal progressive fish wrap, the LA Times. And they published this rare, like very frank, candid analysis, basically saying that California's policymakers were given ample warning of the state's vulnerability to high gas prices and supply and demand issues and didn't do anything do anything to address these these problems and back to my thought every year i saw this headline and every year in my civics classes i like i've said before if you've listened to these podcasts i teach high school seniors and in the economics course which is a one semester course i 
teach a unit on government uh, taxations and revenues. And since I, since it's a California school, living in California, we learn about sources of California revenue and things, and I try to give them as much information as I can. And always, when we bring up the topic of taxes in California, one of the questions that students always have for me is, Mr. Smith, why is gas more expensive in California and it's cheaper in other places? We're only 40, uh, 40 miles, 45 miles from Yuma, Arizona. You get on Interstate 8, you drive, and everybody knows if you're going to go to Yuma, you, you make sure that your car is you know down to an eighth of a tank. You've got enough to get there and you fill up with gas in Yuma before you come back to California and Arizona because it's at least a dollar a gallon cheaper. And so that this is a good question that students have. So I have done a little bit of research over the last few years. I've tracked this and I attempt to give information to my students. I don't give commentary one way or the other. I just hear, say, here's the information. Here is I basic journalism, right? Here's the facts. Decide for yourself what you think about this. And don't take anything I say for granted. Question my assertion. Go out and research it and find out for yourself. So I'm going to do that right now. When it comes to California and gas prices, there are several things that you have to take into account. Uh, there are excise taxes, and an excise tax is a, a tax paid on specific goods or services, such as gasoline. There is a federal gas tax, excise tax of 18 and a half cents a gallon. And everybody across the country pays that. Other Some other states have a per gallon tax on gasoline or a sales tax on gasoline, one or the other, or, or maybe not. Maybe they have toll roads or, or, or things like this in certain places that pay for this, but everybody pays the federal gas tax. Well, in California, we have the California excise tax on gasoline, which the last time I checked, and I think it's gone up since then a couple cents, but as of last spring, it was over 51 cents, 51.1 cents a gallon. And on top of that, so if that was not enough, on top of that in California, we have a two and a quarter cent, pardon, a two and a quarter a percent, not cent, two and a quarter percent sales tax on gasoline. So 2.25% sales tax on gas on top of the excise tax. And this works out to about 13 and a quarter cents a gallon if the average price is $5.80 a gallon. And this is this was as of last spring, the statewide average was around $5.80, $5.90 a gallon. And that works out to over 13 cents a gallon. So that together is 82.75 cents. We could say 83 cents a gallon in California state gas taxes. Well, on top of this, you have other taxes and fees, but this special excise tax was part that really increased. It was, it was a lot lower than that. But in 2017, Governor Moonbeam Brown, Comrade Brown, and the state legislature passed a gas tax, this special cap and trade bill that increased the excise tax on gasoline. And it has slowly, it's was what people didn't realize it was programmed. They started out with 12 cents a gallon, but it's programmed to slowly increase. It's gone from 12 cents a gallon in 2017 to as of last spring, 
over 51 cents a gallon, and it's going to slowly increase until it hits 64 cents a gallon uh, by the end of uh, this year, which is coming up. So I can, it's probably even more than this now. And then eventually it will hit 73 cents a gallon by the year 2031. So it's going to continue to go up incrementally until it hits 73 cents a gallon. And then in 2035, it will be, according to the state of California, it's going to be illegal to purchase or sell a gasoline-powered vehicle in the state, which is, I didn't really think that went through either. So on top of all of these taxes and fees, and, and just eyeballing this here, and like I said, I'm looking at my lecture notes that I put together. I updated this last spring, several months have passed. It's looking at, um, with this increase, we're probably around uh, 90 cents a gallon 93 cents a gallon in California gas taxes. You add to that the 18 and a half cent federal gas tax. Well, on top of this, what a lot of people don't realize are these other special taxes and fees. California just loves to nickel and dime. They tax they, the state lawmakers just sit up there in Sacramento thinking about what what can we tax next. Let's see, what fee or tax can we do? So there is an underground storage tank fee for underground fuel tanks. And last time I checked, that was two cents a gallon. So two cents for every gallon of gas that's stored in an underground tank, two cents a gallon, whether it's at the Shell station or the Chevron or the Circle K or the 7-Eleven, wherever it is you get your gas in California, that underground tank, they, those things hold thousands and thousands of gallons of gasoline. Multiply that by two cents a gallon. The businesses aren't paying that. 7-Eleven and Circle K isn't paying that fee. That gets passed on to the customer per gallon. Now, the fuels under the cap fee, this is a 14.3 cents per gallon tax on gasoline and diesel that producers have to pay. The fuel under the cap fee. Now, it's a part of the California cap and trade program that requires, according to my notes here, requires suppliers of polluting fuels to purchase allowances to offset the emissions that result, result from burning those fuels. The refiners that are producing the gasoline have to pay a cap and trade fee. And that works out to over 14 cents a gallon. And that cost is not absorbed by the refiner, by Valero or what, whoever it is that's refining gasoline in California and California and one of our 11 refineries that we have left, that cost is passed on to the consumer. And so there, and here's another one, the low carbon fuel standard. And this requires suppliers of fuels with high carbon intensity to purchase credits from makers of fuels with lower carbon, such as ethanol and biodiesel. And so that's an, an additional fee that, which works out to about 22 and a half cents a gallon. So there's there's more than one cap and trade or carbon carbon offset fee that refiners and producers and, and, the, and then you get into the fees that are charged the fuel trucks that deliver this. There's there are per gallon fees associated with those as well, and all of this adds up, and it's it's no wonder that in the state of California we are paying so much more. You add to that the fact that California blend gasoline is different from all the gasoline blends made in the United States. It's special. It has a higher 
content of ethanol in it. In a lot of other states, you can get 85 octane gas. California, it's illegal. You cannot get 85 octane. 87 is the lowest octane that can be sold. And California gas, like I just said, has a much higher, I'm not sure what it is, ethanol content, but it is higher. The ethanol, well, what's ethanol? Ethanol, students ask Mr. Smith, what's ethanol? Ethanol is alcohol and it's made with corn. Well, where does corn grow? Where do they make ethanol? Ethanol is made with corn in the Midwest. That's where they grow most of the corn. In, in California, we grow some corn, but most of the corn we grow here is like sweet corn and stuff like that, or corn that's used, uh, goes directly into the feed yards and the dairies, not using it to make ethanol in California. So the ethanol is made with corn grown in the Midwest. And by the way, it takes anywhere between uh, 50 and 100 gallons of water to grow uh, water to grow the corn to make what works out to about a gallon of ethanol. In fact, it takes, if you filled a car with the average gas tank, was it like 12 and a half, 13 gallon tank of gasoline? You filled, if you were to just fill that only with ethanol and burn only ethanol, the it would take enough corn to feed the average human being for one year to make one tank of ethanol just to give you an idea on ethanol but the ethanol is made in the in the midwest and then they load it on these tanker cars on train and they ship it by rail which is by the way is powered by diesel locomotives and they ship it to california where they blend it with the gasoline at one of the 11 refineries that are still open in california so you add to that add to that the fact that there are only a handful of refineries all of this to the fact that there's only a handful of refineries on the West Coast making California gasoline and all of these associated, the cost of getting the ethanol and mixing it and blending it, it's a more complex process. And then you have supply and demand, the bottleneck. It's no wonder we're only paying $7 or $6 a gallon for gasoline, given the state of affairs with gasoline in California. That is the dirty little secret that Gavin Newsom isn't going to mention. He's out there demagoguing. He's a, he, he is cynical and he's, he's, he's either very ignorant or very, very stupid, perhaps both. Uh, but it's, it's not going to get better. You know, if, if it gets bad enough, the refineries in California, Valero and Shell and whoever else, they're just going to pull a John Galt. Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, read it. I highly recommend that to you if you haven't read it. It's a great read. John Galt, that's what, just going to walk away. So, okay, fine. We're going to shut our doors here and leave you guys. You can figure out what you're going to do. You cannot force them to keep their doors open. You browbeat them enough, they're just going to leave. Then we'll be stuck with nothing. Good job. Good job, Comrade Newsom. So there you have it. The gas in California, this is why it's expensive way more expensive than the rest of the country. And this guy, Gavin Newsom, wants to be president of the United States. Guarantee you, if Sleepy Joe, Creepy Joe does not run in 2024 and there is a Democrat primary, you will see Hair Gel Newsom out there on the campaign trail very, very quickly. And he is the golden boy of the leftist progressives. The guy's a scumbag. He's a hypocritical sleazeball. There's some, some name calling on the governor there. All right, moving on. In other news from the People's Republic here, French rail company 
quit California for, quote, less dysfunctional North Africa. And this is a story from Breitbart here. Caught my attention. The French National Railroad Company intended to help California build its high-speed rail from San Francisco to Los Angeles. The, the Talk about a boondoggle. They started this thing 16 years ago, and it was supposed to cost five or six billion dollars. Here we are with uh, cost runovers into the tens and tens of billions of dollars, and they've only completed a fraction of it. But anyway, this is what it says here in this article. The This French rail company intended to help California, but ended up leaving the state to work on a project in war-torn North Africa, which the company said was a less dysfunctional place to do business. And the New York Times published a lengthy essay uh, last week on how California's bullet train has failed despite the fervent uh, desire of Governor Comrade Moonbeam Jerry Brown that this rail be built and investments, billion-dollar investments from the Obama and Biden administrations. It's, it's gone nowhere, and this company has bailed out 16 years later and billions of dollars and nothing happening. What they wanted to do was they wanted to build a high-speed rail between Los Angeles and area, greater Los Angeles area in San Francisco, and then run it through places like Bakerfield and other cities in the Central Valley. Most people, when they go that way, they get on Interstate 5 and they drive north. And, they drive. and, and in the United States, you know, rail travel, that was something that people did in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And once we got the interstate freeway system, up and going starting the 1960s. Uh, that was it. People people didn't want to get on a train. You want to have your, your independence, your liberty, get in a car and drive somewhere. Just another example of California and how the state is, is in a situation where you see not just this French company, but many, many firms, companies large and small, leaving the state for greener pastures, moving to places like Arizona or Texas or the Rocky Mountain Front, even the purple state of Nevada, where they can more easily do business and engage in voluntary exchange without the regulation from the state. I mean, regulate just about, you, know, you want to put a paper clip on a piece of paper, you make sure you get it on there right and make sure there's not a regulation on how you got to do that because there probably is one. And in more news from the dysfunctional People's Republic of California, going back to Governor Newsom here, Comrade Newsom, this guy wants to be president, and we need to know who he is and what he's all about. Here's the headline. We're not going to close the equity gaps. <laughs> no, not that. <laughs> Wailing and moaning, gnashing of teeth. We're not going to close the equity gaps. Despite progress, California community colleges won't reach Newsom's aspirational goals. In 2017, barely a half a year into his tenure, as chancellor of the country's largest system of higher education, Eloy Ortiz Oakley threw down the gauntlet. Under his leadership, the California Community Colleges unveiled a series of unprecedented academic goals dubbed the Vision for Success. If met, the achievements would catapult California's moribund community college system to new heights, leading to thousands more students annually earning degrees, certificates, and transferring to universities where they then will be brainwashed in leftist propaganda. The deadline to meet most of these goals came and went last month in September. The verdict? 
The system has virtually no shot of reaching its most audacious academic goals of narrowing by 40% the graduation rate gap among its black, Latino, and white students in five years. Nor is the system on track to narrow the graduation rate gaps across regions, such as between the Bay Area, San Francisco and Oakland, and the poorer inland empire. While the number of students graduating after three years has inched upward for all regions, and almost all demographic groups, the regions and groups that were already completing degrees and certificates at higher levels, have continued to grow their rates. With even progress across the board, the groups already behind can't catch up unless community colleges graduate them at faster rates. For this reason, it's unlikely that the graduation rates will narrow to remove the so-called equity gap among regions and demographic groups. Basically, what you have here is Gavin Newsom said, hey, five-year plan. That's how good commies think. Stalin, Mao, let's have a five-year plan. We'll call it the vision for success. We're going to close the equity gap. All about equity, not equality of opportunity, not equality of access for students, but about the result. We want to see the gap between my certain minority groups and whites and Asians, when it comes to graduation rate, we want to see that gap closing. All about the gap. And in California, if you didn't know it, California made community college tuition free several years ago. You can go to school in California to a community college if you are in state, tuition free. If you qualify for a Cal grant or a Pell grant, there is all kinds of money available. Going to a community college, especially if, if you're uh, from a low-income family, does not cost you a dime if you're in a community college. Not a dime. Living at home with mom and dad, going to community college. In spite of this, here's a headline for you uh, from September of last year. It used to be higher than this. It was like 74%. 70% of California community college students fail. They don't graduate. Only... 40% of community college students in California achieve sufficient credit hours in school to boost their potential in the workplace. And so they're, they're breaking their heads trying to figure this out. And how are we going to close this equity gap? Here's it's the typical leftist solution. Let's throw some money at it and let's do a five-year plan and we'll appoint a bunch of bureaucrats to run it. And people with, with uh, the alphabet soup of education, you know, their, their abbreviation in front of doctor and PhDs and this, that, and the other thing and pedagogical experts. And here we are. This kind of reminds me of the no child left behind. I experienced that as a teacher. I remember that it was like in 2004 president, uh, it was George W. Bush. It was his deal on a national level. And all the states said, oh yeah, let's just jump into this and we're going to have standardized testing. And by the year two, in 10 years, in 2014, all students, at least in California, this is the way they phrased it, no child left behind. All students will perform when they take that state standardized test. All of them will score proficient or advanced. Nobody will be deficient. Nobody will, will score below proficient. Nobody will be, I can't remember, remember exactly what the categories were, but nobody will be left behind 100%. And they gave schools these ridiculous goals with a moving target. The first year was like, okay, at least 40% have to be score you know, proficient, proficient or advanced. And then the next year, at least 50% of your students. And it, it was a moving target. And I remember 
as we approached that date and they realized it kind of every school hit a plateau and we're like, okay, this is the number. And you might see a little increase every year in the test score improvements, but they weren't going to meet the target. So they had to scrap it. And this is the situation they're in right now. They're back to the drawing board. And what did we do? I mean, I mean, we had equity in the title. What happened? We're in, here we are in the most leftist, radical, lunatic, liberal, progressive state in the nation, throwing uh, unlimited, more than half of the state budget gets spent on education, whether it's K-12 or higher education in the state of California. Billions of dollars at this with the so-called experts, and they cannot achieve the result that they want. It's not working. I'm going to try to help the state of California out here, although I doubt anybody up in Sacramento in the ivory tower will hear this. Uh, but nevertheless, I, and I come from a place as a classroom teacher in a public high school in a rural area of California that is over 80%. In fact, I think it's 83, 84% Latino Hispanic as far as demographics go with a large and ever increasing number of students in our public schools in this area that are English language learners. They are uh, new to the United States and learning English, not their native language. This is where you went wrong. You went wrong in focusing on the outcome and just tossing money at a program. Back it up a decade, back it up two decades. Let me give you a case in point here. It was over a decade ago when I first got into education in California. I've been at the school where I'm teaching now. This is my 15th year. And I had a colleague for the first, oh, it was, I think, three years that I worked at this high school. And he was a retired police officer, a Vietnam veteran, went into education. He also continued serving in the Army Reserve and did over 20 years. He had a lot of, he was a, a sergeant major or something like that on the side. And he was just a really cool guy. And he was the U.S. history teacher. And he was kind of a mentor to me. It was at this period of time that I, that I mentioned with the No Child Left Behind and this moving target. We would have these weekly, almost reminded me of like, you know, the, the communists where they get together in these self-critique sessions. What are we doing wrong? What are we doing wrong? What are we doing wrong? And the school administrators and district administrators coming to these meetings. And sometimes they would just feel like they're just browbeating the teachers. Uh, occasionally they would ask, well, what can we do uh, to improve these test scores to help these kids? And so this guy, I'm not going to mention his name, but he went, he tried to put his finger on what is it that's holding these kids back? And he went and took all of his kids and they, they will do this. The English teachers will do this and had them do a reading assessment. He had them do several assessments, but he had them do an on the assessment on the computer that helped determine their grade level for reading. And he was teaching US history to high school juniors, kids in 11th grade. These kids are 16, 17 years old. He discovered that over three quarters of his students were reading at a fifth grade level or less, and only a small, I think it was like 5% of his students were actually reading at an 11th grade level. They could not even read the textbook. They couldn't read the question on the state test and comprehend it because they could not read at grade level. He had something like 30 
five or 36% of his students that were reading at like a third or a fourth grade level. And he broke down all of this data. And then he went and he did some research on reading intervention and discovered that with intensive reading intervention, you can increase a student's reading level on average about one grade level, maybe a grade level and a half in one academic year with intervention. And in a good case, maybe two grade levels, depending on the student. But on average, about a grade level, maybe a little bit more than that. And he took this information to the school and district administrators and attempted to explain to them, like show this to them, say, look, we're focusing on the wrong thing. We're trying to teach these kids. We've got all these programs and keeping them after school and trying to teach, you know, test taking skills and let's have them copy down the objective from the board into their notes every day. And let's make sure they understand what their object, their learning objective is. And all of these things that were coming from Sacramento, from the state capital, from the U.S. Department of Education, all of the latest pedagogical Kool-Aid flavors that they were peddling at the time is what the focus was. And this guy went in and said, look, these kids can't read. They can't read. How do you expect them to pass a test? How do you expect them to learn if they can't read? How do you expect them to write if they can't read? How do you expect them to go to college and function if they can't read at grade level? And you know what they told him? They told him, sit down and shut up is pretty much what they told him. They did not want to hear what he had to say. The moment we went wrong in this country with education is the moment that we deviated from the basics of reading, writing, arithmetic, with real-world applications, science, the basic sciences, chemistry, physics, biology. Increasingly, we see the emphasis on woke ideology in education, a woke spin. Kids in biology class are learning how humans are going to destroy the planet. They can lecture you really good on that. How many of them can do math, take a real word, like a word problem? I have in, on the shelf in my classroom, I have a collection, a small collection of old textbooks from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And today I pulled off of the shelf a textbook, a seventh grade math textbook, first uh, edition, 1931 for use in California schools. It was uh, retired. And so I don't know how I came by this thing. I, I like old books and I picked it up and it was uh, used in a school, a, a town near where I live. But you look at this book and it goes through and it. I, I look at the math problems in there. And I, if I were to give this to a high school senior today, there was seventh grade stuff. Would they be able to do it? And it was mathematical concepts started with the review of the most simple addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and in every section, a real uh, subject, a real life application, a series of real life. I should have brought that book home today and in this podcast and read some of the problems to you in there, but real applications with putting the math into use. And this is where we've, we've gone away. We've gone astray for, from this and the common core uh, is supposedly trying to bring that back, but they're they're not really doing it in the right way, and they're confusing kids more than they are anything else. But we deviated, and in California, you add to that the fact that we have a very large number of students who are new to the United States and cannot speak English very well, don't know English, and are are trying to learn English, and that makes it even more difficult. If they ever want to 
fix, quote, air quote, fix education, you have to go back to the basics and you have to expect kids to perform and you can't coddle them and baby them. Big emphasis in the state of California and, and other states on high school graduation rates. Here's a story for you. So I have a high school senior that's got to pass my class, misses class all the time, never does his homework, goes to sleep during class, doesn't matter what I do. I could put on a pink tutu and do a dance in front of class and, and do the most interesting thing ever, tell funny jokes, doesn't matter. And the kid would sit there and eyes glazed over, not do a thing. Final exam time rolls around. He sleeps through the final exam. Long story short, fails class. Not going to graduate. They call him up to the office and they put him on credit recovery, credit recovery program where he can make up the course that he just failed. And within three days, he sits down in front of a computer and pulls a passing grade and gets to graduate after three days in a, on a credit recovery program so that the school can say, we had a 100% graduation rate. That's what's going on. You don't want to be the school. It figures into your school report card, your graduation rate. And so this is, this is what schools are doing. We got to make sure they graduate. We got to get them off to school. We got to get them enrolled in school. Go to college, incur massive debt. Doesn't matter if you can't afford it. Go, that's what you need to do. And then they go to college and a lot of them can't make it. They're there for a year or two. They come home, they got this massive debt. They try to go to the community college which is, like I said, free, but over 70, well, today, 70% of them are not finishing anything in California, not graduating. California is a poster child for everything that you don't want to do in government. So keep that in mind the next time you happen to hear Harajel Comrade Gavin Newsom give a speech, or in the near future, if you see him on the debate stage running for president of the United States. We'll wrap up today's episode with a tidbit here for you from the senile old man who lives in the White House in a recent interview on CNN. I actually asked him a question here. The midterm elections are four weeks from today. The economy remains top, top of mind for voters. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO said the U.S. is likely to enter a recession in the next nine months. Bank of America says the U.S. could start losing 175,000 jobs a month. Gas prices are on the rise again. Should the American people prepare for a recession? No. Look, they've been saying this now how every, every six months they say this. Every six months they look down the next six months and see what's going to happen. It hadn't happened yet. It hadn't. There, there, has, there is no, there's no guarantee that there's going to be a recession. I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it'll be a very slight recession. That is, we'll move down slightly. Well, look, think about what's happened. We have done more. We're in a better position than any other major country in the world, economically and politically. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, from the man who just about a year ago said that inflation would be transitory. Need I say more? Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to ask a question or comment on something or make a suggestion uh, for a topic, look me up on Truth Social. That would be Smith Talk on Truth Social. If you have friends who are Spanish speakers, prefer Spanish, maybe it's their first language and they also speak English, share one of my Spanish language podcasts with them. In fact, uh, as I look at those, I get quite a few views on the Spanish language uh, podcasts there. So I try to put those out um, periodically. 
very busy this time of the year as a school teacher and putting out his putting putting these episodes out as often as I can, as I can make time for it. But again, thanks for listening. And until next time. <laughs>